Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. We are finally in the New Testament. We have been studying the story of the Bible in 16 verses, and we've been in the Old Testament for about three months. And today we get to begin in the New Testament in Mark chapter 1. And before, before we get into the text today, I, wanna, I just want to read something that I came across, um, something that Mark Zuckerberg said on June the 30th. I don't know if you guys saw this or not, but I want to make a comment here about what we're doing this morning as a church. This is a, the, t- the title of this. Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, says that Facebook can and will fill the role played by churches. Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg wants his social network to fill the role that churches and social clubs once did in communities. And he says that there's a lot of people who now need to find a sense of purpose and support somewhere else. In fact, bringing people closer together is so important that we are going to change Facebook's whole mission to take this on. Apparently, Mark Zuckerberg is completely clueless as to the nature of the church, uh, which is no surprise. But apparently he believes that we today have a church-sized hole in our hearts that only Facebook can fill. Uh, But I want to tell you something today that we gathered together here today, we, we are not uh, going to be replaced. And I promise you that the church of Jesus Christ is going to be around much longer than Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Um, And so you will never find your sense of community and purpose by snuggling up with your laptop or your smartphone. Newsflash, right? Now, I love social media, and I love the fact that we can be connected. Um, But let's not make any mistake about this, that there is only one institution on the planet that Jesus laid his life down for, and it is the church. He shed his blood for the church, and there is something found here in this body, in this fellowship of believers, this community of the kingdom this morning, this gathering that cannot be replaced by anything else. And by the way, you will never find community even meeting on Sunday mornings. It takes more than us simply gathering here today. We need to be in fellowship. We need to be in community. And there is something unique about the church of Jesus where we find that. And so I want to encourage you today as we are grinding through the summer and as we're traveling and as it's a fight and it's a struggle on Sunday mornings to get here, I want to encourage you and tell you that being here matters. And being in fellowship with other Christians matters. And it can never be replaced through any type of social media. I just had to say that because... There is this thought uh, that, that the church can be replaced. It will never be replaced. And so your being here today is important for your souls. And so as we study the book of Mark today, and we look at what Jesus said about the, the kingdom, we are gathered here today as the community of the kingdom, the church of Jesus. And so uh, let's, if, uh, we have notes for you. If you don't have handouts, we can get those to you to help you follow along today. But we are in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to look at two verses today, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. 
It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want to remind us of the story so far. We, we do this every week to build on what we've studied previously. And my dad always told me repetition is the mother of skill. And so the way you memorize stories and the way you remember these things is you repeat it. And so the story so far, where have we been? We see that God created a kingdom and he is the king. But he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rejected that call, which led to sin and death. But in Genesis 3.15, we saw the first mention of the gospel, where God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, who is also the seed of Abraham, we see more specifically in Genesis 12. And through Abraham's family, and even more specifically through Judah's royal seed, David Covenant blessings would come to the world. And so there would be a king from David's line through which the covenant blessings would come. And yet, because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly our need for a substitute. And Isaiah 53 reveals that substitute more clearly that it is the suffering servant. Not only the work of the servant, but through the work of the Spirit of God, God would establish a new covenant as Eric talked about this morning. And God would give lasting life to His people in the new heavens and the new earth. And the Jewish people put all of their hope in this kingdom, right? That through David's line, and so David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon had sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and the kingdom was divided, and all of David's descendants, all of the kings, were sinners, right? They failed, and they... They messed up, and Israel's hope was lost when they were taken into exile. And for hundreds of years, the prophets would preach that there would be another Davidic Messiah king who would fulfill the promises of God. He would establish the kingdom of God. And you get to Malachi, and you end the Old Testament, and there's 400 years of silence. And it appears that God has forsaken his people. And the question remains, will God fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? The next part of our story today, we see in Mark chapter 1, as Jesus comes onto the scene, that Jesus is the one through whom all of these promises will find fulfillment. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, John the Baptist has been arrested, the forerunner. He's come preaching, prepare the way, make straight the highway of the Lord. The king is coming. Get your hearts right and get your hearts ready. And so Jesus comes into Galilee and he's preaching the gospel of God. And this is what he says in verse 15. And I'm going to break up verse 15. These will be our three points for the sermon today. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Point one, the time is fulfilled. Point two, the kingdom is at hand. Point three, repent and believe the gospel. These verses in Mark chapter one summarize Jesus' preaching ministry. It summarizes everything that Jesus came to do. And so the gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means. It's the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not just coming 
But it's here. And that means that God's rule over God's people, over God's people's hearts and their lives is now being established. And people should repent and believe the gospel. Repent and trust in this king. The kingdom is more than simply the rule of the Spirit of God within God's people. Since the kingdom will ultimately mean the restoration of all creation. So when Jesus says that the kingdom is at hand, he's not just saying that my kingdom is here and the kingdom is in your hearts. He's saying I have come to reverse the effects of the fall in Genesis 3. I'm the whole kingdom of God, everything God created, I am coming to make all things new. So I want to remind you guys of something. It's really easy for us. We've grown up in the church. We have our Bibles. And your Bible is very neatly divided into two testaments. Right? Two covenants. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's really easy for us as we read the Bible to just assume that there's a division there. But you realize there's no inspiration of there being any division between Malachi and Matthew. Right? So don't, don't read your Bibles and just... Just assume that there needs to be a division. The Bible, even though it's divided that way in an Old and New Testament, there is continuity between the Old and New Testament. They, they are telling one story. And it, there's continuity in that the New Covenant actually fulfills the Old, and the Old testifies to the Christ of the New. Now, there is some discontinuity between the old and the new, but the only discontinuity, it's not that they contradict each other, is that the Old Testament has to give way to the new, and the people of God have to embrace the solid reality of Christ and let go of the shadows of the law of Moses and the worship of Israel. They have to let go of the Old Testament and realize that the new has come, and so you can't hold on to both. That means that Jesus... Jesus is, the, is God's final and fullest revelation of all of the promises he has made in the Old Testament. He is the one that we have anticipated. He is the one we've been looking forward to that the Jewish people were waiting for for thousands of years. This is the one they've waited for. And so the first point we want to say today is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. And so this first point there in your notes is actually the point of the entire sermon, okay? I want to sum it all up in one point. Ready? This will help you understand the Bible. Here it is. Jesus is not just part of the story. Jesus is the point of the story. Get that in your bones, right? Jesus is not just a part of the story of the Bible. Jesus is the point of the story of the Bible. Everything is leading to him. He is the central character. He's the central figure. He's in the spotlight. Everything is about him. Everything in the Old Testament points to him. Everything in the New Testament is fulfilled through him. Jesus is not just part of the story of the Bible. He is the point of the story of the Bible. So what I want to do this morning, is, is, is take what Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, and I want us to go and look back at everything in the Old Testament and see how does Jesus fulfill those things. Because Jesus says the time is fulfilled. So what does he mean by that? Alright, the first thing that I think he means by that, and here are just some examples. There is no way we can cover everything. But here's the first example. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. And actually, there's something we could say before this, and, and write, I didn't put this in your notes, but write this down. Jesus 
is the new and better Israel. Let me start there before we get to the temple. In general, Jesus is seen as the new and better Israel. There, there is unique language used in Jesus' ministry, right? What's the, one of the first things Jesus does? When the Spirit of God comes upon him, he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted, right? And what we see is, is Matthew and Luke are intentionally showing us that Jesus goes out into the desert and is tempted. The same way that Adam was tempted and the same way that Israel had to go into the wilderness and was tempted. And where Adam failed and where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Jesus does not fall to temptation. So Jesus is being portrayed as the new people of God. He's the new Israel. And one of the fulfillments we see here is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple or the sanctuary. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. All of the, all of the imagery in the tabernacle, all of the imagery in the temple is meant to point us to someone later who would fulfill these things, right? So when you have the tabernacle, the very idea of the tabernacle and the temple is the incarnation of Christ. When, when John says that Jesus became flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us, what he literally says is that God tabernacled with us. All right, so you go back to the Old Testament. You go to the book of Exodus, and God says, I'm going to dwell with my people, and I want you to build a tent. A big tent. And so what you're going to do is you're going to build this tent. I'm going to give you all the specifications. And then I'm going to dwell in the midst of my people. And that's what God does. And so the tabernacle is a, is a symbol of the very presence of God in the midst of God's people. Later we see this as the temple, right? When Solomon builds this great, glorious temple... God's glory dwells in the very midst of that. And so the tabernacle itself represents Christ, God dwelling in the midst of his people. Except this time, Jesus doesn't come in a tent, he comes in human flesh. Another example here of the temple is the curtain, right? Remember in the Old Testament sanctuary and the Holy of Holies, there was, a t there was a curtain that separated the people of God from the presence of God. And so the, the curtain here is actually pointing to the very body of Christ. As, we, as Jesus is crucified, it is his body that Paul says becomes the, tur the curtain. It is the veil that was ripped for us so that we would have access to the very presence of God. When Jesus' body was broken on the cross, it indicated to us that access to God was open. The same way that the temple veil was ripped in half, what, what, what made that possible was that the body of Christ was ripped in half. So that when Christ was ripped, his body became the veil through which we enter into the presence of God. Does that make sense? If you want to get to the Father, you have to go through Jesus. It's not just some nice imagery and symbolism of, oh look, the curtain was torn in two. No, Jesus' body, it is through the crucifixion and the death of Christ through which we have access to God today. And so the fulfillment of the very curtain being ripped in the temple is Jesus' body being broken for you so that you would have access to God. Another example of this is the very top of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, the, what was called the propitiatory, where, the, where the, the priest would come in and take the blood of these sacrifices and would sprinkle the blood on the top of that mercy seat or the propitiatory to show that the sacrifice of the animal actually atoned for the sins of the people. This is exactly the argument that 
Paul makes in Romans chapter 3. Where he says that Christ became a propitiation for our sins. Jesus becomes the one who sprinkles his blood so that we can, our sin can be atoned for. Another example is the incense. So when you go into the tabernacle or you go into the temple, you would have walked into that holy place and there was a place where incense would be burned. Now what's the point of the incense? This had, this had the idea that when the incense was burned, it was offering up a, 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 a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This has the idea of intercessory prayer. has the idea that Christ is our high priest. And so even that, that incense burning in the sanctuary was a picture of, of God being worshipped by his people and that the people of God having contact with God. And it's in Christ that his sacrifice, his body is offered for us and he makes intercession for his people as our high priest. All of the imagery in the temple is pointing to Jesus. This is why God put it in there in the book of Exodus. So I'll give you another example. The candlestick, right? There was this huge candlestick, this lamp that was placed in the temple to provide light inside the holy place. So when the, when the priest would go in, he would be able to see because of the light in this seven-pronged candlestick. Well, what does Jesus say in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8? I am the light of the world. I am the one who brings light to the people. Not only that, you had this laver, you had this bowl where the priest would come in and wash his hands before he would perform any type of sacrifice. Even the, the bowl where people would wash their hands is a picture of Christ washing us from the defilement of the world and cleansing us from our impurities. Who knew, right, that the book of Exodus and the sanctuary and the tabernacle and the temple would be pointing us to a greater reality in the ministry of Christ. So that's the first Fulfillment. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The greater temple is here. This is why Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, if you tear this temple down, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Why did he say that? He's talking about his body, that his body is the new temple. That no longer do you go to a temple to meet with God, but if you want to meet with the Father, where do you go? You must go through Christ. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament temple. Let me give you another example. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament rituals. All of the Old Testament rituals pointed to Christ. So we've looked at Exodus. Now let's go to that really interesting book of Leviticus, right? Maybe you've read Leviticus and thought, why is this in here? What does this mean? And here's what, here's what you see in, in Leviticus. Leviticus starts off in the first few chapters explaining different types of offerings, different types of sacrifices. And each of these rituals point to the work of Christ. So if you get a Leviticus, don't go there. But Leviticus chapter 1 explains the burnt offering. The burnt offering was a burnt offering for sin. The animals would die, its blood would be shed, its body would be burned. And it would atone for the sins of the people in, in the Old Testament. What do we see in the death of Christ? The death of Christ makes atonement for sin. He is the lamb without blemish. It is his blood that is shed. He is completely destroyed. And it is his sacrifice that is a sweet aroma to the Lord. Alright, Leviticus chapter 2. Here's another example. The dedication offering. Alright, so they had another offering where they would, they would bring their, their crops and they would bring the first fruits and they would dedicate those things to the Lord. 
It is the dedication of the body of Christ to do the will of God. You have symbols of this in the Old Testament of salt and honey and leaven. But they would bring these offerings to God to dedicate themselves. And it is the very body and life of Christ who dedicates himself to do the will of God. If you read Hebrews chapter 10, it says that God gave him a body to do the will of the Lord. Leviticus chapter 3. This is going to help you understand Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 3, you have the peace offering. So we've got a burnt offering. Dedication offering. Third, you got a peace offering. People would make another sacrifice. So if you're, if you're a Jewish person, you, you would offer your first sacrifice, the burnt offering, to take away your sin. And then another offering, you would sacrifice another animal to make peace. The peace offering is exactly what it sounds like. It celebrated the fact that now I'm at peace with God. I'm at peace with God because a sacrifice, an animal, has taken my place. And what does... Paul say in Romans 5 that Christ is our peace. He has made peace with us. This is celebrated in the Lord's Supper. We came to the table today to celebrate the fact that you and I are no longer at enmity with God. We are no longer at war with God. God is no longer angry with us, but we have peace. White flag being raised. There is peace now. God has been reconciled to us. And so Leviticus chapter 3, as the Jewish people would offer sacrifices to celebrate peace, we do the same thing every Sunday morning to celebrate that we are at peace with God. That He no longer holds our sin against us. Leviticus chapter 4, there was a purification offering. This is cleansing that comes through the death of Christ so that we can enter into His heavenly presence. Leviticus chapter 5, there was a reparation offering. This is debt that Christ paid for the sins of the world. And then you get to the very center of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16. And you have this day of atonement. Yom Kippur. The day in which one lamb would be killed for the sins of all the people of Israel, all the believers, and then another animal would be set out as the scapegoat to take away the sin. Jesus is our scapegoat who takes away the sins of the world. He is crucified outside the camp to die. He goes outside of the gates of Jerusalem to Golgotha. He fulfills all of this imagery. He is the sacrifice who takes away our sin. And he is the high priest, high priest who enters the Holy of Holies with his own blood to make everlasting atonement for us. So we see even in Leviticus, Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament ritual. I'll give you another example. He's the fulfillment of rituals. He's also the fulfillment of every Old Testament Jewish festival. Everything that the Jewish people were celebrating on their calendar, Jesus, Jesus fulfilled those things. Let me give you an example of these. And I didn't have room in your notes to put all of this stuff, so I'm just going to tell it to you now. Number one, the Sabbath day. God created the heavens and the earth. He creates everything in the world in six days. And on the seventh day, what does He do? He ceases. It's a Sabbath. It's a holy day. And so God commands His people to rest on the seventh day. To rest from their labor. But this isn't just about taking a break from cutting grass and going to your job. The point of the Sabbath for the, for the Jewish people was to celebrate the holiness of God. It was to celebrate the fact that God was their source of strength. And so they could cease from their labor. And the Sabbath day was a day for them to focus their hearts and their attention and their hope on God. 
So how does Jesus fulfill the Sabbath day? Is it really about not working anymore? No, the Sabbath day for us as Christians is not found on a day of the calendar. Our Sabbath is found in a person. This is why the New Testament writer of Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4 tells us that Christ is our Sabbath rest. We sang the, One of the first songs we sang today was about ceasing from your own striving, ceasing from your own trying to work it out. We, we don't try to earn favor with God anymore. We don't try to earn it through our good works. We cease. We rest. We rest in Christ. It is His work that makes us right with God. It is His work that reconciles us. It is Jesus' work that makes us acceptable to God. So part of today, part of this worship service... Part of celebrating the Sabbath, it's not just sitting on the couch and not doing anything. It is about actively putting your hope and your faith in Christ alone and saying, God, I am not trying to earn my way to you. It has been perfectly earned for me in the work of Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. So I am perfectly accepted by you, not by my own achievements, not by my own merits, but by the merit of Christ. Is that what you're celebrating today? Are you truly celebrating the Sabbath? It's not about ceasing from work anymore. It's about finding your spiritual rest in a person. Another ritual or another festival that the Jews celebrated was Passover. We've talked about this before in one of our studies of this. The Passover was about the death of Christ. This Passover lamb that would cover the people of God. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that Jesus is our paschal lamb. He is the lamb that takes away our sin. And he is the sacrifice that we eat symbolically in the Lord's Supper. They had a feast of unleavened bread. They, they would have this festival that the Jewish people would celebrate. You read about this more in 1 Corinthians 5. This talks about the holy life of believers that result from the death of Christ. Leavening yeast in the Bible is seen as a, as a bad thing. It's seen as something that corrupts and this is why we eat unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper. It's a symbol to remove sin, that sin has been removed, and that sin, a little bit of sin, corrupts everything. And so Christ is the, he is the unleavened sacrifice. He is the one who has no sin, and he removes sin from us. They had another celebration, a festival, the celebration of the first fruits, where they would bring their crops, and they would bring the first fruits of everything and dedicate it to God. This is why we give freely and willingly of everything that we have. We give the best that we have to offer. On Sunday morning, the very beginning of our week, Sunday is the first day of our week, and we celebrate it by doing what? Worshiping. We come and we worship and we gather and we sing. This is all fulfilled in Christ. We still have first fruits. We just don't bring our corn and our wheat. We bring our money and our time and our energy and our hearts. And we give the best we have. The first day of the week is set aside to worship Christ. The Feast of Weeks was, began, uh, was celebrated from the day of Pentecost. This was the harvest, right? Um, the, the Feast of Trumpets, the beginning of the ingathering, the Day of Atonement, which we've already talked about. All of these things were fulfilled in the life and ministry of Christ. And now I want to get to my favorite part here. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the rituals. He is the fulfillment of the festivals. He is the fulfillment of all of these, these, these symbols in the Old Testament. But there are also people that Jesus fulfills. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of every Old Testament character who served as types. Now when we talk about typology, this is something you learn in theology that when you read the Bible and you read the Old Testament, there, there is something called typology where people in the Old Testament serve as types. So when we say things like Jesus is a greater David, we're not saying that Jesus is David. What we're saying is that Jesus, or, or that David himself, shows us a picture of what Christ will be like. We get a, a picture of the future ministry of Christ, and we see later how Jesus fulfills even better than what David did or any other Old Testament figure. Let me give you some examples. This is there in your notes. Christ is the greater Adam, right? And so this is picked up by Paul in the book of Romans, that Jesus is the greater Adam. So how, how do we see Jesus, or Adam as a type of Christ? Adam is the first man that's created. He is the head of the race. And God gives dominion to Adam and says, Adam, all things will be given to you. You are to take dominion over the earth. To lead your bride well, Adam, and Adam fails. He doesn't take dominion. He doesn't lead his wife well. He stands on the sidelines while his wife Eve is deceived by the snake. And he fails as our head. And in Adam we are all sinners. This is why Romans 5 has to tell us that someone greater than Adam has come. The second Adam. Jesus is the true head of the human race. He's starting a new human race. He's starting a new race in which when people under Christ, they're the ones who are redeemed from the fall. In Adam, all die. This is the point of Romans 5. If you are in Adam, you die because you are in Adam, you're under Adam, and you are guilty of Adam's sin. But for those who were under Adam, sin came into the world because of one man's righteous act, eternal life comes to those who believe. Jesus is the greater Adam. And he, unlike Adam, lays down his life for his bride, the church, gives himself up willingly for her benefit. And, and unlike Adam, who allows his wife to fall into sin, Jesus cleanses his bride from sin. He is the greater Adam. Another one, Christ is the greater Melchizedek. If you want to read about this interesting story, Genesis chapter 14, Abraham goes to rescue Lot. I'll tell you the story briefly. Lot gets into trouble. He gets kidnapped. And you have all these kings. There's like ten kings mentioned. There's this big civil war. And so Abraham gets his, his guys and goes to rescue Lot. And you have, the, you have the king of Sodom who comes out and tries to make a deal with Abraham. And then you have this other king, a king of Salem. You might know it as Jerusalem. It's the same place. Later becomes Jerusalem. This guy named Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. That's literally what his name means. And Melchizedek comes and gives Abraham bread and wine. And he, he makes this covenant with Abraham. And so later, if you, as you read through the Bible, you read the book of Psalms, you read Psalm 110, and you read the book of Hebrews, 
Melchizedek is different because Melchizedek, his death is never mentioned. He's an eternal king. And what makes Melchizedek different is that Melchizedek is not just a king, but he's also a priest. He offers a sacrifice for the benefit of Abraham. And so what we see later is that Jesus becomes the greater Melchizedek. He becomes this king and this priest who never dies, whose, pre, whose priesthood lasts forever, whose kingdom lasts forever. And he's not just a king, but he's also a priest. Jesus is the greater Melchizedek. Not only that, Christ is the greater Abraham and Isaac. We have this beautiful picture in Genesis 22 where Abraham the father offers up his son Isaac for the sins of, uh, to take, for just because God tells him to. And, and what God does is he offers a lamb in his place. And so God the father becomes the greater Abraham. Jesus becomes the greater Isaac who lays down his life and God does not spare his own son like Abraham spared Isaac. The father takes his own son to the top of the temple mount, up to not Mount Moriah. This is the same mountain where the temple is built, and that's where Jesus is crucified. So Jesus is the greater Isaac, who lays down his life for his people, and his, his life is not spared by the father. Galatians makes this argument that Christ is the promised seed he is the greater Isaac. Not only that, Christ is the greater Joseph. You read the, read the book of Genesis and you have Joseph, this, this figure who later becomes king. And, and what happens to Joseph? He is wrongly accused. Sound familiar? Falsely imprisoned. He's raised up to a position of power at the right hand of the Most High. And he suffers to save his own family. He suffers so that he can save many of his brothers alive. And everything he has in his kingdom is for his family. And he provides for their every need. Doesn't that sound familiar? Everything Joseph does points to a future fulfillment, a greater fulfillment of Christ. Not only that, Christ is the greater Joseph. He's also the greater Moses. He's the greater Moses. We're told in, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, that, that a prophet greater than Moses would come. Jesus is a greater prophet. The one who truly leads his people out of bondage of sin and into the freedom of all of God's promises. Not only does Jesus give his people a new law as Moses did, but he also fulfills that law for his people. What Moses did is he gave the law to the people of Israel, but Moses could never change the people's hearts. This is why the people were led into sin. And so Christ not only gives his people the law, but he comes and fulfills the very law that he gives his people because he knows his people can never obey the law themselves. What happens when Israel sins? Moses intercedes for his people. Jesus also intercedes for us. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's also the greater David. Greater, a greater king than David. A shepherd greater. Who not only protects his people from lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. But he also protects his people from the greater enemies of sin. 
He's the greater David. He doesn't just fight giants like Goliath. He fights the giants of sin. He substitutes himself for his people, wins the victory, and gains the victory for his people so that they can enjoy all of the blessings of his kingdom. And you read this in the Psalms. Psalm 2 is the coronation of the king. Psalm 45 is the wedding of the king and the union of Christ and the bride of heaven. This is all fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. He is greater than David. This is why David says in the Psalms, My Lord said to my Lord, I will, you will sit at my footstool. Here's another one. This is, this is cool. Christ is the greater Jonah. Christ is the greater Jonah. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, that something greater than Jonah was here. What did he mean by that? Have you ever thought of this? Jesus says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, you know that story, Jesus says the Son of Man will also be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus and Jonah actually have several things in common. I want you to think about the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus on that boat in the middle of that storm. There's a lot of things that are in common. And this is very intentional by the writers of the Gospels. What, do the, what does Jesus and Jonah have in common? First, both Jesus and Jonah were in a boat. And both boats were overtaken by a storm. And the description of the storms are almost identical. Also, both Jesus and Jonah were asleep in the boat. In both stories, the sailors had to wake up the sleeper and said, we are going to die. Happened in the book of Jonah, he's asleep, and they said, wake up, sleeper, we're dying. What do the disciples say to Jesus? Wake up, master, don't you care that we are perishing? And what happens in both stories, both in Jonah's case and in the story of Jesus There was a miraculous divine intervention and the sea was calmed. Furthermore, in both stories, the sailors then become more terrified than they were before the storm was calmed. Both in Jonah's story and in Jesus' story, the sailors are more terrified after the calmest storm than before because they realize that something godlike has calmed the storm. Two almost identical stories... With one difference. Do you know the difference? What is the difference between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus? The difference lies in how the storms were calmed. Do you remember the story of Jonah? What did Jonah say that the sailors needed to do in order to calm the storm? Throw me overboard and the sea will be calm, right? So they throw him overboard and this big fish comes to swallow Jonah. How does Jesus calm the storm? He speaks. And it appears that these stories are different. That one prophet is thrown into the sea to calm the storm. And the other prophet just speaks. But It seems like that doesn't happen in Mark's story. You have one prophet that says, if you throw me over, you'll live. If you don't, you'll die. But in Mark's story, it doesn't happen. Or does it? Or does it? Maybe these stories are not different. I think when you stand back, you see that Mark is telling the same story. 
with the, if you look, look at it from the rest of the story of Jesus in view. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, one greater than Jonah is here. And he's referring to himself. Jesus is saying, I am the true Jonah. And he meant this. Jesus says, one day I am going to calm all storms. I'm going to still all the waves. I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going to break brokenness. I'm going to kill death. Now the question is, how is Jesus going to do those things? He can only do it because he was on the cross. And he was willingly thrown into the storm, just like Jonah, into the ultimate storm, into the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. And so Jesus' story is not unlike Jonah's. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can actually sink us, the storm of eternal justice, what we owe for our own wrongdoing. The storm wasn't calmed, not until it swept him away. Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, just like Jonah. And a greater Jonah is here. I got one more. Christ is the greater Jonah, but he's also the greater Solomon. There's plenty of examples of this, of other characters, but we'll stop here with Solomon. Christ is the greater Solomon. And parents, as you teach your children the Bible, this is, these are things you can talk to them about. Old Testament stories are not just stories of morality. They are pointing to a greater fulfillment in Christ. How is Jesus the greater Solomon? Solomon was both the son of David and he was a wise man of Israel. He was the wisest man who ever lived, right? Up to a point. There was one wiser than Solomon. Because now Luke chapter 11 tells us that one greater than Solomon is here. We learn in the Old Testament that wisdom would be a characteristic of this Davidic king, this Messiah. And even as a young boy, what do we see in Luke chapter 2? When Jesus gets separated from his parents, he shows superior wisdom to that found in the leaders and the teachers of the temple. Not only does Jesus speak profound wisdom in such a way that when people hear him, they say, no one ever taught like this man before. He not only speaks wisdom, but Jesus also claims to be the very source of true wisdom. Paul later tells us that Christ has become wisdom for us, which means that we are rescued from the false wisdom of the world. He is truly greater than Solomon. Finally, in the time is fulfilled. We'll spend the most time on this point. Jesus is the fulfillment of every great event in the Old Testament. When you look at all the great events and you look at all of these big picture things, we see that Jesus fulfills these in a greater way. Right? So when you read Noah's Ark, the story of the flood, right? it's really not about Noah and it's not about his ark. It's about how God was faithful to rescue his people. And so Noah's Ark and the flood is a picture of salvation through Christ through judgment. So that the ark now becomes a picture of another piece of wood, a, a piece of Roman lumber that was put in a cross so that in Noah's day, to be saved from the flood of the water, you go into the ark, you go into the boat, and you hide. And you're not touched by the waves of God's judgment. In the same way, in the New Testament, we go and we hide under the shadow of the cross. And the waves and the rain and the storm of God's judgment will not touch us because Christ Christ saves us. Noah's ark is a picture of the future salvation found through Christ. Another picture in Numbers chapter 21, the bronze serpent. 
This is a fun one. The bronze snake. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, even so will I, the Son of Man, be lifted up. This is Christ on the cross, lifted up between heaven and earth to draw all people to himself. You read Numbers 21, and if you're not familiar with that story, the people of Israel are in the wilderness and they're complaining. And what does God do? He punishes them by sending snakes. That'll bless you, right? Snakes. Here's a snake, there's a snake, everywhere a snake, snake. Snakes in the bathtub, snakes in the bed, snakes on a plane. They made a movie about it. There's snakes everywhere, right? And, and they're biting people, and many of the people who are bit by these snakes died. And so Moses intercedes for the people and says, God, what should we do? How can these people be saved? They're repentant. Will you please show mercy? And God says, take a snake, put it on a pole, and if anyone looks at the snake on that pole, they will not die. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up that snake in the wilderness, even so I will be lifted up on the cross. So that now we don't look at a snake, we look at a Savior. And if you look at that Savior on the cross, you will be saved. So Numbers 21 is a picture of Christ. There's another one. When you read Exodus chapter 16, you see that God provided manna from heaven. And Jesus in John chapter 6 teaches that he is the very fulfillment of that. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one that satisfies our soul's hunger. There's another example here in the book of Exodus where Aaron's rod, his staff, budded. Remember there, he has a, dead, a staff, it's a stick. And in Aaron's staff, it started to bud, it started to grow a new life. This is a picture of the resurrection of Christ, that life can come from something that is dead. The resurrection of Christ is pictured even in the budded staff of Aaron. Another picture, Moses meets the Lord, meets Yahweh at the burning bush. What do we see here? This burning bush is burning, but it's never consumed. And what do we see through the nation of Israel, through God's protection? The nation of Israel always in the fire of persecution, but they are never consumed because the Lord is protecting them. The last example, and there's many of these, but when David moves the Ark of the Covenant back up to Zion, he moves it back up to Jerusalem. He takes the very presence of God after it's been stolen by the Philistines, and he brings it back, and he takes it back up in 2 Samuel chapter 6 to the Temple Mount. This is a picture of the ascension of Christ, when Christ not only died, but he was raised from the dead, and 40 days later, on the day of Pentecost, he ascends to take his rightful place at the right hand of God. So, when Jesus says that the time is fulfilled in Mark chapter 1, he really means the time is fulfilled. Everything that has been anticipated in the Old Testament has been pointing to the fulfillment found in Christ. Second point I want to make, and these will be quick. The time is fulfilled. Point two, Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom is at hand. The coming kingdom is finally here. And so when we, when we talk about the ministry of Christ in 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 theology, there's usually three offices that we talk about. Prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus, these are the main offices in the Old Testament. The office of the prophet, the office of the priest, and the office of the king. These three offices are all fulfilled in Christ. And so, what do we see? The kingdom is at hand. That first means that Jesus is the true prophet. When the kingdom is coming, that means that the, the true prophet is here. Don't miss the fact that Jesus was a preacher. 
Did you see what Jesus came doing in Mark chapter 1 verse 14? It says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching. Don't ever forget that Jesus was a preacher. He came proclaiming the kingdom as a prophet would do. He is preaching as a prophet with a prophetic voice. And not only does Jesus preach the prophetic word, he is the prophetic word. He is the very word of God. The whole work of Jesus is revealing the truth about God and the kingdom. And it can be seen as the climax to the prophetic office of the Old Testament. Everything that the prophets prophesied in the Old Testament, they could only see in part. And they only knew what God chose to reveal to them. But now in Christ, Jesus is the very truth. And He perfectly reveals the Father and how we can know the Father. Jesus is the true sense of what it means to be a prophet. Boldly speaking to the people the very words of God because He Himself is Jesus is the true prophet. Second, Jesus also is the true priest. Later in Mark, I believe it's Mark chapter 10, Jesus will say that he did not come to be served, but to serve. This is the imagery of a priest. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not only the priest who serves the people by offering a pleasing, wrath-satisfying sacrifice to God But Jesus is the actual sacrifice who willingly lays down his life to atone for the sins of God's people. He is the true Passover lamb. He is the sinless offering for sin. He is the only way that you and I can be reconciled to God today. Finally, Jesus is the true king. He is the prophet. He is the true priest. And he is the final king in his kingdom. The kingship of Christ begins with the fact that he literally is a descendant of David. And he fulfills the prophecies of the Davidic Messiah. Not only that, when Jesus is crucified, his resurrection and his ascension are both seen as a proclamation of his lordship and a fulfillment of all the covenant promises. Jesus is declared to be the son of God at his resurrection. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Let me read this for you. Romans 1 verses 3 and 4. Jesus Christ concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not only is this new Israel raised from death, but the king of Israel is proclaimed. He is the king who conquers death for his people. When Jesus says that the kingdom is here This kingship image refers back not only to Israel and to their king, but to the dominion over creation that was given to Adam. When we see Jesus do miracles in the New Testament, it is pointing to the restoration of all human dominion as well as God's conquest over Satan. When God heals blind people, it shows that God is reversing the curse of blindness that started in Genesis chapter 3. When God raises Lazarus from the dead, he's showing that the curse of sin and death is broken, the kingdom is here, and everything's being restored back to the way it was in Genesis chapter 2. When, God, when Jesus cast out demons, he's showing that he has conquered over Satan and that the seed of the serpent and the head of the serpent is being crushed. Everything is being reversed. The kingdom is coming and God's dominion is coming over all of creation. And so thus Jesus identifies himself in Mark as the son of man. 
a reference to Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man would restore dominion to the people of God. It is the final coming of this Son of Man who is the King when He comes in great power and glory. It will signal the final restoration of the human race. Jesus is the King. He is coming. He's going to make all things new. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. What does that mean for us? We talk about this at Three Rivers all the time. This is a perfect place to talk about domain engagement. To continue to be agents of change in your domain of society. Your domain might be your house. Might be your family. Might be your children. Might be your workplace. Might be your community. But wherever you are, we are imitating Christ. We're imitating the Father as we take dominion over the earth. And God is restoring back all things to the way it was meant to be. Your life matters. Your ministry matters. Your job matters. The time is fulfilled. This is the moment we've been waiting for. This is what history has been anticipating. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And so what does this mean for us? Third point, Jesus says, if the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand, what that means for us, we need to repent. Repent. The king is here. Repent and believe the good news. This is what Mark chapter 1 verse 15 says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This means that we can be restored to God only through faith in Jesus. It does us no good if if Jesus fulfills all things and that we are still outside of the covenant. If we're outside of the blessing. So what does that mean for us today? Submit to your king. Submit to Him and His Lordship. That first means that we turn from our sin and ourselves. This is something we need. I know this, some of this may sound redundant, and it may sound like, man, He says this, says this every week, that we need to repent. Yes, because every week we need to repent. I don't know about you, but I sinned this week. And I need repentance in my heart and continued restoration of my life. Turn from your sin today. Put your faith and trust in the King. We turn from our sin and ourselves and we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. He is the King. He is the priest. He is the prophet. And He is the Savior. This is the message we want to proclaim. And this is, this is what we want to do next Sunday. I want to encourage you. Be there at Ridge Ferry Park it's on Sunday night at 6 p.m. Be there because we want to share this with other people. We want to invite them to church. We want them to hear the gospel of the kingdom. People need to know that the kingdom is here. They need, they need to know that the king has come and that he is making all things new. Let me make this final reminder here. and I think this is a good, good reminder for us. Because I, I realize that most of us have repented of sin. We are trusting in Jesus. But maybe, you're not, maybe you're not okay with where you are right now. Maybe you're, you're dissatisfied with your spiritual progress. Or maybe you're not moving at all. Let me make this last point. An initial moment of faith in time leads to inevitable growth in faith over time. An initial moment of faith in time leads to inevitable growth in faith over time. What that means is if you've truly trusted in Christ, there's going to be growth. There's going to be growth in your life. You're going to become more mature in the faith as you continue to 
look at Christ and seek Him in His Word, as you continue to do those things, you're going to grow. And so trust the Lord. Uh, we, we never... We never want to make sanctification part of justification. We, we, we're never right with God because of our spiritual growth. But our spiritual growth will happen if we are united with Christ. If we are abiding in Him and we are abiding in Jesus. Apart from Him, we can truly do nothing. It is in Him and Him alone that we'll find our growth and our maturity. And so, Three Rivers, abide in Christ today. He is fulfilling all things. His kingdom is at hand. He is making all things new. And that includes your heart. And it includes your neighbor. It includes your co-worker. It includes everyone you come in contact with. He's making all things new. The time was fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Let's repent and continue to believe this good news and share it with the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word and this, these simple but powerful words of Jesus that he has come to fulfill all things. He's fulfilled every event, every ritual, every, every person in the, in the scripture is just a shadow of the great fulfillment found in Christ. He's come to fulfill the law so that we don't have to. We can never fulfill everything you've commanded. We desire to do so, but we fall short of your glory. And we need someone to fulfill it for us. Christ has fulfilled all things, and we declare that today. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom is at hand. Father, make us agents and instruments of your kingdom. Help us to engage our domains to be salt and light in the earth. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And Lord, we want to be brought to repentance and renewed trust in Jesus today. So renew our hearts. Fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And give us a renewed sense of joy in the finished work of Jesus in the gospel. Father, we love you. And I thank you for the opportunity to gather today to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, you'd be pleased today with our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond now to the word that we've heard in singing.